Well, there's an amazing new translation and process on the book of Isaiah. We'll talk to the translator. We'll talk about Bible translation today on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. It was just a few months back... I was online on Twitter, and someone referred me to a new translation of the book of Isaiah. I immediately went to the page, began to look, and thought, this, this is beautiful. This is, mag- this is it. This, is, this expresses things in, in the poetry and power of Isaiah. That's amazing. And began to read about the translator, Spencer Clavin, realized, wait a second. I had his dad on the air. A couple of years back, his dad was a famous novelist, now a famous conservative voice and a known Jewish believer in Jesus. So the dad, Andrew Clavin, the son, Spencer Clavin, is a lecturer, scholar and lecturer of ancient Greek language and literature at the University of Oxford, also a specialist in ancient music. So we've connected. And I said, man, we, we've got to get you on the air. So this is the first time that we'll be communicating voice to voice as opposed to email to email. But phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Specifically, if you have a question about Bible translation or theories of Bible translation or why one translation is preferred over another or how to translate a particular passage or, or debate an issue about that, by all means, give us a call, 866-34-TRUTH. But without any further ado, Spencer, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you've got a fascinating background, a scholar in ancient Greek, but also scholar in ancient music, but then also able to translate Hebrew Bible in a literate way. How did, how did these things come together in your life? Gosh, that is a great question. I'm not totally sure I can answer it in any other way than by saying, through the promptings of the Holy Spirit, I um, began my academic career uh, in Oxford studying ancient Greek, as you say, and ancient Greek music, and I uh, studied classics, which is really the study of, of you know, Athens and the, um, the, the non-Judeo-Christian Greek texts. But, of course, being a believing Christian myself and becoming proficient in ancient Greek, it was natural that I would start to look at the New Testament in its original Greek. And from there, I was so excited by what happened when I looked at these texts, which like book that I've known for years, and it was like reading it for the first time. After a while, I couldn't sort of stop there, and so I got excited about learning biblical Hebrew to read the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and that began as a bit of a devotional project, but it's become more and more of a scholarly endeavor, and one of the great joys of that has been that my scholarship and my faith and my reading of Bible have sort of converged together in this project that I'm now doing on the book of Isaiah. So how long have you been working on the project? Well, you know, the whole thing really began back around this time last year. I was, it was the season of Advent, as it is now, the season when many Christian churches celebrate and commemorate the moment of waiting for for Christ's arrival into the world. And Isaiah is a 
is a book of the Bible that gets read a lot during that time because, of course, Christ associates himself with the Messiah who's prophesied by Isaiah. Christians believe that Isaiah, Christians believe that Isaiah prophesies the coming of Christ. And so we often read this book and the various prophecies that refer to, to Jesus in it. And I was sort of sitting in church and listening, and there are so many just famous, you know, world-famous passages here. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, these beautiful lines that often get read or sung, especially in the King James translation, which is a 17th century English translation. And I was thinking, you know, that these, these words are, of course, gorgeous. Of course, they have this sort of deep resonance for me, having heard them year after year. In another sense, because I've heard them year after year, and because language moves on and English develops and evolves, I'm not actually sure that I'm really listening to this anymore. And and I started to get curious about the Hebrew, having learned Hebrew over the, the years prior. And so I started to dig into the Hebrew and just see kind of what's there. And again, it was like setting the words on fire. You know, I, Isaiah is not just the, one of the great prophets of Israel, he's also a master literary stylist, and the language that he uses to describe both the, the devastation of sin and the joy of salvation and the coming of the Messiah is so powerful and shocking and sometimes gritty that I really thought it would be exciting if we could get a, a kind of new, fresh English mm. translation and hear these words again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a million questions get triggered in my mind just because of my own background and study. But sure. uh, and and folks, we'll we'll give the the website where you can read this for yourself, and there's there's background commentary and further information. But here's what what really captured my attention, Spencer. When when I started learning Hebrew seriously, I, I learned a little when I was born mitzvah at thirteen, but it was it was in a nominal Jewish home, so it was very little. And then I started college. And the only Hebrew classes were modern Hebrew. So I, I got a biblical Hebrew grammar that a rabbi recommended and started teaching myself biblical Hebrew. And then mm. when I first started reading the Hebrew Bible to really try to grasp and learn seriously, I started in Isaiah. So I was reading so slowly, you kind of memorize the, the text, you know. But more recently, for a Job commentary that, that I was working on, I chatted with the publisher and said, you think I should do my own translation. They recommended it. So, you know, Job is the most difficult to translate. Obviously, a lot of philosophical challenges, theological challenges, but it's, it's really difficult to translate. And I wanted to convey a certain power and force of, of the poetry and the words, but maybe because of the commentary, I, I just wanted to really stick very closely to the text and not make it too poetic. When I got to your Isaiah translation, I thought that's that that's the verb that's the feel that i like so how how is it that you have balanced being faithful to the text that you don't want to change all the words and and it be so poetic that that it divorces it from there and yet convey the dynamic power of the hebrew and english how, how have you worked that out yeah wow it's such a good question it sounds like we've struggled with a lot of the same issues and you know you you're much further along in that process than I am, but I, one of the things that really strikes me about Hebrew that is quite, quite different from English is that there are many fewer words, vocabulary words, that are usually used in, in writing Hebrew, and that's more true for some of the historical narratives. But even in prophecy, where things get poetic, there's a lot of word 
play with a few different routes to kind of get uh, change. And so it gets very easy, first of all, to build up meaning. You know, this words like davar, as in the word or the proclamation of God, um, get used in so many different ways and contexts that they each one has a slightly different nuance. And then in English, you might have three or four different words that you need to use for that. And so you have that concern going on. You have the issue of the kind of poetic or the literary quality of the text, which you have to really resurrect for, for modern ears. Not everything sounds the same to us as it did to uh, Hebrew speakers in, in the 8th century BC, of course. And so you've got to think about how to recreate some of the alliteration that Isaiah, that Isaiah uses when he uses the same letters or the same words, uh, change around a couple times. And then, of course, you most of all, and, and first and foremost, you want to make sure that you're not getting in the way of the meaning. And in fact, that was one of my primary concerns, was, was the fact that Isaiah is, Isaiah is so full of rich description and references to historical events and, and places and times that we can, again, lose sight of what the heck it is that he's actually saying. And so I think my, my primary goal here was clarity. I wanted people to read this and, and understand what's being said, because the message is so urgent, what, what, Isaiah, what Isaiah is trying to get across, that that's really my first concern, and I, I try to stick as close as possible to the, the meaning of the, of the language. Now, sometimes you have to do that on a sentence level rather than a word level, so if you right. need to change around a couple words in order to get the meaning of the whole sentence, and sometimes that gives you a little bit of freedom also to, to do some wordplay and to, to sort of recreate some of the sound effects and the uh, the poetic tropes that Isaiah that Isaiah is using. Yeah. So so friends, go to rejoice evermore.com. That's the website with other material from Spencer as well. Rejoice.evermore.com, and then click on the Isaiah Project. So I I just want to read some from chapter one, the vision of Isaiah son of Amos, which he saw about Judah and Jerusalem in the days when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. Hear heavens, earth, lend your ears. God makes his proclamation. I made my sons grow, raised them up, and they, they revolted against me. An ox knows his herdsman, a donkey knows his master's paddock. Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. Oh, doom, sinful nation, population heavy with corruption, offspring of the evil ones, destroyer sons. They abandoned God. They disdained Israel's sacred one. Their backs are turned. So uh, you can get the, the feel of, of the power of that. And that, that, again, it really has the vibrancy of the Hebrew. I, I, I know, Spencer, with my commentary work and things like that, I, I tried to be extremely consistent. If a particular word was used in a particular context with a particular meaning to always try to render it the same way. So that, that pulls back a little on the flexibility. You know, so one has to decide what they do there. But reading Greek literature... Then reading Hebrew literature, in terms of the the feel of it, the dynamic of it, how how would you describe? We just got about like a minute before then we'll pick this up. But the difference between reading ancient Greek poetry and Hebrew poetry, how how does it feel different? Yeah, well, that feature of Hebrew that I mentioned earlier that it's got sort of a few really central and key words that pick up a lot of meaning. Um, that's, first of all, a reason why it is helpful and important to nail down a few of the most crucial ones. So heavens and earth, for example, in that first line, hear heavens and earth lend your ears, shemaim v'eret, that's 
two words that are so important you want to make sure they're the same each time, and then you sort of dance around and play with the words on, on either side of them. But in Greek, uh, the structure is, is some, quite a bit closer, I'd say, to English, and you have a lot of different words with sort of different registers, and in some ways it's, it's easier to nail down philosophical ideas in Greek, uh, whereas it's easier to play with mystical concepts and poetry in Hebrew, and the interaction between the two of them in the Bible is, is really exciting in that way, too. Yeah, and it's also part of the wisdom of God to reveal the scriptures to us in Hebrew and Greek, very different languages in which different things can be more clearly conveyed. All right, friends, go to rejoice-evermore.com. If you have a question, Bible translation question, phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH. My guest, Spencer Clavin, will be right back. Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, it is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. Thanks so much for being part of the broadcast. I'm speaking with my guest, lecturer, professor at Oxford University, Spencer Clavin. And I really encourage you to check out his ongoing translation of the book of Isaiah, his Isaiah project at rejoice-evermore.com. Check out the other material there as well. If you have a question for me, Bible translation question for me or for my guest, 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Hey, Spencer, um, I want to take a call from a rabbi. And uh, we'll both be able to interact with him on his questions. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. Uh, well, we go to the phones. A gentleman that I just know from Twitter is the college rabbi. Uh, welcome, sir, to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking me. Uh, you know, we've had some nice conversation on Twitter, and that's, of course, the, uh, the impetus of the call. Uh, I'd like to continue what we were discussing on uh, Zachariah, I'm sorry, Zechariah 12. Sure, please. Yeah, so so let our let our listeners know what your issue is, and then we'll take a look at the Hebrew text together. Okay, so as we know, uh, grammatical rules, as we know them now, were only set up during the Middle Ages. That even the vowels, which we take for granted, uh, of course, were uh, developed by the Galenim, the rabbis in Babylonia, seventh, eighth, ninth centuries. And we were having a discussion with a couple of them, and I kind of refined it, and I see three grammatical rules that we're discussing that are pertinent here. Uh, the first one is et, the word mm-hmm. et, which, as we know, is a uh, directional object, that whenever you see the word et, what follows after it in a verb is going to be the object of the verb. The second one that we came up with is subject for verb agreement. We were discussing that. And then the third, which as I see is probably not as important as perhaps we were discussing it before, is uh, active-passive as it relates to the word uh, dakaru. 
So All right, so we're looking at so so others others know where we are. Uh, we're we're looking specifically at Zechariah twelve ten, which yeah. is in Christian translations. Uh, they will look to me whom they have pierced. So the phrase in Hebrew et asher taken to mean whom the one whom, uh, and right. then so, uh, that's that's the crux of the discussion here. Yep. Yes. So this was something I had asked you. Um, I was wondering where the rule et asher came up, because I'm not familiar with the rule et asher, but the rule et is very foundational. In fact, if you take the New York State regions, high school regions in Hebrew, you have to know et. Mm-hmm. Et asher, I'm not familiar with any such rule, but the way that anybody that I've ever learned Hebrew, and this is yeshiva, this is public school, took Hebrew a little bit in public school, this is university level, is the way that you would read it according to the grammar that you learn in school would be et, and then asher dekaru would be the, in this case, the subject of the word ibitu. So right, so you, you, would, you would translate it differently than the you would translate be. it differently than the Talmud understood it and differently than the Septuagint understood it, in other words. Um, not at all, because um, I'm reading the straight text. No, um, no I, I understand, um, but when it's when I, it's quoted in the Talmud, it's quoted in a, it, it's quoted as if et asher is is the phrase. And when it's quoted in the Septuagint, uh, it's, um, it's where exactly in uh, the Talmud is it quoted as a share? No, in other words, the the way that we're reading it, that they are looking to one they pierced, or the one that oh, right. was uh, pierced. I, I mean, I have I have a set of Talmud, you know, in, in you know where I am. I can pull out the Talmud and and take a look exactly. Okay, yeah. So all right, so we'll we'll go there in a second then. But let's. I I I, th- I thought you may have had that in your head, but that's fine. So I, uh, it, be- I, before I, I bring mean, S- you know, I, Spencer like- in for a, a Hebrew perspective as well, what I would say is, you want to look at does the phrase "et asher" occur a certain way? Do, do you have when you talk about grammatical I rules, have- you have to look at the whole verse. So if you look, if you'll just do a search in the in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible. For et asher, when they occur together, you'll see right. you'll see about a hundred thirty times they occur together. And I understand they occur together, right. and the way the only way to read this, according to the standard grammatical rules accepted by everybody, is that you would read it et, and then a share and whatever follows would be together. It would be a directional object. It would turn whatever phrase, et, into itself a subject, into a noun, even though when we're looking at it, we would... Right, so, so that's, 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 that's the point. I'm that. saying that if you'll examine the 130 times that a share follows et, you'll see that it goes together. That's the point, that, that I have 130 references in Hebrew in front of me, and if you'll go through them, you should be able to just do an, an easy search on that, uh, that you'll see that the phrase, it, it occurs as a phrase together, that you're isolating them, but it actually occurs together. And I'm not syntactic. isolating them at all. What I am doing is not isolating them, but I am bringing whatever comes after a share and telling you that the rule is, and I'm more than happy if you can find me a source that brings a separate rule for a share, 
rather than yeah. Act, I, I cite I cite the grammar in volume volume three. Rule. Yeah, sir. I, I cite the grammar. I give other examples from the Hebrew Bible, and I cite grammar from the standard Hebrew grammars that are you know recognized and, and used by all. I cite that in a footnote uh, to Zechariah twelve ten in volume three of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. So we that's already covered. We already gave that information. I also cite I'm, the 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 Klein's lexicon you know, the dictionary of, of classical Hebrew, which is a standard eight volume set. Uh, and I, I give his treatment of, of et followed by a share. I mean, so I've, I've got the grammatical Brian, rules. All, they're all cited for you. They're all cited for you. They're, they're already there. I, I can't get into, like going to quote pages on, on the radio here, but they're all there. I mean, I, I, I think if we're going to come to an under... Listen, if any of your listeners, for example, would go to any Hebrew speaker, you know, Hebrew is now a modern spoken language, and they would ask you how et is used. They're going to tell you that anything after et, so asher, it goes together, but it goes together in the sense that et is encapsulating, so the et asher, and in this case, dakaru, asher dakaru is going to. The et is going to turn it into a directional object. Right, That's right, okay, so, right, do. right, oh, okay. I understand so, in some... Just, just in, fair, right, in, in fairness to those that are trying to listen, and in, in, in fairness to my, to my guest as well, what I'm saying is you are ignoring 130 examples of et followed by a share in the Hebrew Bible. You are ignoring the grammatical rules that I cited uh, in, in the I'm book at... All right, so then what's wrong with the grammatical rules I cited and the citations given from the Klein's lexicon and the other examples I gave from the Hebrew Bible? What's wrong because, with those? Because nothing's wrong with them, because all of them will follow this rule as well, and you will see, or your listeners, they're welcome to look, anywhere you see the word et, you're going to have a consistent reading where you don't have to change the rule when the word asher comes after, there is no there's no changing of the rule. It's a direct object, and Asher is whom? They they will look to the one whom. There's there's no change. They'll look to the one whom at Asher. They'll look to the one whom you're they pierce. Inserting a word there. Whom is Asher? Whom is Asher? Yeah. Whom? So at is the direct that. object. All no, right. No all right. Tell you what. Tell you what. I, I, listen. I would I would love to discuss this further. But you're refusing the grammar. You're you're simply so. Listen, why don't we have a private conversation on the phone one day then? Because it's not fair to listeners to it. It's going to make no sense. So Spencer, when when you're looking at and and just stick around one second, Spencer. When you're, uh, uh, I, I wanted to bring you in earlier, but the controversy over Zechariah twelve ten messianic prophecy and how is it understood in traditional Jewish translations. Um, when when you see at followed by Asher or Zechariah twelve ten, which I assume you're familiar with, how would you approach right. the text? Gosh, you know, I'm I'm looking at it now, and uh, it's not a it's not a text that I've ever translated or or really studied in a scholarly way myself. Um, but I have just pulled up the Septuagint, and then also, I mean, one of the, the reason why I suppose this is such a an important issue is that it it comes up in John right chapter chapter nineteen. Uh, verse 37, and there, you know, both of these texts are, are in Greek, and, and so one of the sort of interesting things there is that when you're dealing with the question of, of active versus passive, you've, you've got a middle voice as well to deal with, which kind of, in some senses, can leave the question ambiguous. 
Um, the, what John writes is opsontai eishon exekentesan, which is absolutely unambiguously, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. And I suppose that my approach, if I were to sort of look at this text in the Hebrew, would be to attempt, first of all, to look at your list of parallels, which I, I don't have in front of me myself, but I, I take it on faith. Uh, and then I would I would move on, I guess, into the Greek, which does seem to confirm that an active sense that they have pierced. They will look upon the one whom they have pierced, and that is the most natural. Not being, you know, trained from high school Hebrew, that that seems to be to be the most natural reading. Eight being the direct object marker, and asher being the relative pronoun. But again, it's it's not something that I've I've looked into in depth myself. Got it. All right. So so just to sum this up. To our college rabbi friend, and I'm happy to have a private conversation. We'll figure out how to do that. At direct object marker, followed by relative pronoun, I'll share. So the one whom they pierced, just as we translate it. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Joined by my special guest, Spencer Clavin, who is a scholar and lecturer of ancient Greek and ancient music at Oxford University and is producing a beautiful translation of the book of Isaiah. Go to rejoice-evermore.com to find out about the Isaiah Project. And we'll, we'll talk more about that, look at some examples from the project there, and then we'll post links to it on social media. If you have a translation-related question, give us a call, 866 866- Three, four, truth. Uh, Spencer, one question that uh, I was asked to ask you on on Twitter was in terms of a favorite Bible translation. And obviously, you know, people say, what's the most accurate or what's the most, the, the closest or the best? Obviously, that's a very subjective question. But do you, as someone fluent in ancient Greek and, and strong in ancient Hebrew, do you have a favorite English translation? You know, it's funny, my answer might be surprising in that I just sort of explained how I started doing this translation because I was sort of dissatisfied with listening to the King James version over and over again. This is this old, tried-and-true 17th century uh, English version of the Bible. But in fact, I'm one of the sort of most passionate devotees of the King James that you'll ever meet. I think, first of all, in and of itself as a work of English composition. It's one of the foundational texts of English writing up there with, I would say, the complete works of Shakespeare as, as a, an English piece that has basically fed mm-hmm. into all of, of what was subsequently written. But on top of that, the, the more I've learned about the biblical languages and the closer I examine some of these original texts, the more I find moments in the King James where what seems like a sort of mm, fusty, old-fashioned way of writing something is actually a careful attempt to preserve an ambiguity or a double meaning that exists already in the, in the Greek or the English. And so I, I love the beauty of the, of the King James 
I read when I when I worship. Usually, the the translation that I hear read aloud is the NIV, the New International Version, and that's very clear and, and direct. And I I do enjoy it. But I think one of the things I'm trying to do with this project is to sort of unite the clarity of that modern English with some of the just transcendent beauty of the King James. I mean, the Isaiah alone in the King James is, is a work of art. You know, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, is, is a glorious way of, of expressing that moment in Isaiah 14. But I think it, it just needs a little bit of updating for modern ears, as it were. Got it. Right. So there is, it does preserve a certain majesty and power. Obviously, a lot of language has changed over the centuries, and then we keep learning more about ancient Hebrew and Greek and more manuscript evidence and things like that. But there is a beauty and power that, that is wonderful. So when you, we were talking about earlier the difference between Hebrew poetry and Greek poetry. What about the, the radical difference in verbal expressions? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm 10 times better or 100 times better in Hebrew than I am in Greek. But no, and, and it's, it's Koine that I've really learned far more than, than classical. But the precision of the Greek verbal system compared to the fluidity of the Hebrew verbal system, how, how was that for you, having learned Greek first and the precision and, and how you can nail things? You know, this is past, but it stops at a certain point or this past and ongoing and versus the Hebrew, right. which is, is so fluid. How, how did you go from one world to the other? Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned time and tenses when, when you ask that question, because for me, that's the central joy of moving from Greek to Hebrew. Greek is, even more than English, Greek uses its verbs to really nail down not only the moment when something happens, but how long something has been happening for, and whether it happened in the past and has ongoing effects in the future, or whether it's over, and all sorts of things like that. In Hebrew, one of the shocking things for an English speaker or somebody who studied Greek is that verbs don't necessarily get rooted in time in quite the same way. You have a sense of verbs that are progressive and ongoing, that is, they describe action which, which is still continuing. And then you have verbs that describe complete action. But that complete action could be happening in the future. Sometimes that's used to describe something that, even though it's being prophesied, is going to happen in the future, but because God is saying it, it's so certain that it's as if it's already happened. And, and a classic example of this is Isaiah chapter 9, the people that walk in dar- darkness have seen a great light. And there we're, we're being given a sort of definite thing that, has ha- that will happen in the future, but is sort of expressing itself as if it were happening now. And this is, I think, you spoke earlier about the wisdom of God in conveying Scripture to us in the languages that, that it's in, this is one of the central ways in which that's true, that Hebrew is a, is a fascinating and excellent language for talking about infinity and eternity and the mm. divine, because God, of course, enters into history and acts in history where things happen before and after and now and then, but he also exists outside of time, and all of his actions, whether they happen after this moment that we're in now or before, are eternal, and in his own sight, the whole plan of salvation is in some sense, already accomplished. And so mm. being able to get both of those realities, it's kind of, sometimes I hear Christians call it already not yet, the, the way in which things both have happened, because God has decided upon them, but also are still in progress and working out from our perspective in time, is really exciting and, and difficult to capture in English. Yeah, and you know, what's, what's called commonly the prophetic perfect, so it's spoken of in the past tense, but it's a future event, 
and you have it right in the Torah, you have it in Numbers, the 24th chapter, uh, a scepter, you'll, you'll look at all your English translations, you know, a scepter will rise, whereas the Hebrew says right. it, it has risen, and the rabbinic commentaries, they, they address that as well, Rashi and others address that as well, so the, the prophet sees it as if it's already happened, and, and then describes it after it happened, before it happened, so it is, it, it is wondrous, but then you have these places where you can't tell in the Hebrew, is, is the writer referring to his present suffering, like Job saying, whatever I fear happens to me? Or is he talking about the things I feared in the past have now come on me because of the, the fluidity of the Hebrew verb system? So it's, it, is, it is fascinating to look at. And when you came to uh, a passage like Isaiah seven fourteen, which many English translations will say virgin, and then, of course, the debate about the exact meaning of Parthenos when it, it's there in the Septuagint. And then uh, Jewish translations will say maiden or young woman. So I was curious to see how you rendered that. So uh, what did you come up with at Isaiah seven fourteen? I thought it was very fair, actually. Okay, sure. This is a really interesting question, and it speaks to a larger question of whether we, as Christians who believe that Christ is in this text on every page of it, do we insert him back into our translations, essentially, and opt for choices which make it more clear or even assert that, that the virgin birth is being prophesied here. And Parthenos in Greek, just like the Hebrew word, has a kind of ambiguity. It, it could describe just a young, unmarried woman, but mm-hmm. it could also describe a, it could also specify a virgin. And so I've written on, on 714, I've written, look, see a maiden girl conceiving. And so that, that word maiden in English kind of gets the sense of, often it refers to somebody who is a virgin, but it, it could also just be a young, a young woman, and then a maiden girl kind of gets that, that tenderness in there as well. And I think that the really, for me, the, the philosophy behind that is, in the Hebrew text, there exists an ambiguity. And it, God in his wisdom has put that ambiguity there to invite us to make our own interpretive choices and decisions. It's sort of like when, when Jesus says to Peter, you know, who do, who do people say that I am? And Peter lists all these options, and then, and then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And, and it's rather than saying, I am the Messiah, Jesus sort of opens up a space for Peter to make that confession and, and invites him and even demands that he walk into that space, which enables Peter's choice to be a part of that crucial moment in Church history. And so in a really tiny way, that's kind of what's going on here with translation. I, I don't really believe in inserting that answer for the reader. I think that the reader is invited and challenged by the text to investigate and see, is this, do I believe that this is referring to Jesus of Nazareth? And, and that's one of the things I try to keep alive with my translation. Got it. Excellent. And, and I, again, Maiden Girl, I, th- I thought it was very good because it, it gets your attention. It's not just young woman. It's not virgin. Mm-hmm. And, and even if you said betula there, which is used for virgin in legal context, betula in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean virgin. And there, right. you know, for example, the text will, will call the, the young men and the young women to mourn, and it uses betula in that context. It's not saying the young men and women mourn. And then David is described as an elam. It's not a virginal man. It's just, it's just a, a young man. And the root has exactly. to do more with youthfulness. And then, but then there's a commentary that Rashi has on it saying that maybe the sign was that she was just an Alman. It wasn't suitable. It wasn't expected for her to give birth. And then the other question is, does it have an application in Isaiah's day 
of some birth of great significance in the Davidic line, but it's just a foretaste of what's to come. Uh, and then even what you mentioned about Parthenos, most just assume, well, if it says Parthenos in Greek, the Septuagint, that that was virgin, but it doesn't, ha- it doesn't even always have to be virgin in the New Testament. Like the parallel of the 10 virgins, is that 10 virgins or 10 maidens? Even that can be debated. Or, or, or would you differ with that last point? No, you know, I, I think that that is exactly right. And especially I agree with sense that things can have historical significance and refer to actual events in time. I, Isaiah is a person who is speaking to a particular historical context around 740 BC in Jerusalem and dealing with the coming of, of Assyrian threats and, and the Babylonian conquest. But he's also, as a prophet of God, he's uttering words which have infinite significance beyond his human context. And so it can absolutely be the case that in history, God leads us through periods which foreshadow what is eventually going to be the ultimate meaning of, of this text. The word that gets used in, in the Greek New Testament is, is pleurosis, and that gets translated as fulfillment a lot of the time, a kind of filling out or a, a bringing to completion of, the, of what something was always meant to be. And so I don't think it's a problem at all for us to say that at, at the time this had a particular meaning, but that meaning also pointed forward to what was was ultimately to come in Christ. I mean, one of the things, when we're talking about these differences between tenses in Hebrew and tenses in Greek, one of the most magnificent features of, of Greek, you know, I, I, I sort of wax poetic about how exciting it is that, that Hebrew's not locked down in time and can speak about the eternal realities of God a little bit more fluidly. But then when we get to the New Testament, a lot of what we're doing is we're translating Hebrew into Greek and locking it into time, almost as if that infinity and that eternity is being yeah, manifested. Yeah, because the, the word became flesh. Yeah, yeah. All exactly. right, we'll be right. This is wonderful stuff. We'll be right back with Spencer Clavin. Stay right there. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Boy, I, I wish I had hours to talk with my new friend, Spencer Clavin. You know, when I saw that he was a scholar in ancient music, I said, hey, I, I've got a book coming out on the power of music, God's Call to Change the World, one song at a time. And, and I've got some great blurbs from different worship leaders and songwriters. The book is due out January 8th, and we'll be doing a whole week focusing on music, the power of music. And I, I asked Spencer, I assume he's super busy as scholars and academics would be, if you might take a look at it. So, so we have added in, along with the worship leaders and songwriters, a great blurb, much appreciated from Spencer Clavin. Uh, so Spencer, let's, uh, let's take a call about the book of Isaiah and uh, we'll go to uh, Jay in Idaho. You've got a question about Isaiah 9-6, so go for it, please. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call, Dr. Brown. Um, I'd like to quickly just preface my comments by saying I am not a Hebrew expert. I am a Hebrew learner, so very possible to have a misinterpretation here. But I recently got in an argument with an apologist online about uh, Isaiah 9-6, the phrase Everlasting Father. Mm-hmm. Um, Aviad seems to me to constantly refer to 
eternal or everlasting father. And I mean, there's almost 150 some odd translations. I've read 65 of them in the English language. Um, and they're all everlasting father with the exception of two, which was Young's Darby or Young's literal and Darby. Um, and yet a big argument made by a lot of people is that this actually means father of eternity, which really means father of eternal life. So I had two questions on that. My first question was, why do both English and trans English and Jewish translators overwhelmingly translate this as eternal father rather than father of eternity? And number two, um, is the word odd ever used to describe everlasting life? Because it seems to me that the word olam is always used to describe everlasting life, and that even in, for example, Isaiah 45, 17, when you see the word odd, odd is actually describing the olam rather than the eternal life. So what would be your answer to that? Yeah, so I, I want to go to Spencer's translation in a moment. In Hebrew, it's one verse different. It's Isaiah Nine five. So I'll I'll let him explain his translation, and then I'll weigh in afterwards. But just in short, uh, odd by itself, off the top of my head, just running through references in my mind. No, I I would not think of that in itself describing eternal life. For example, Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. God is shochen odd, inhabiting eternity. Uh, so it, it would normally be you know, forever and ever, that kind of concept, but not specifically about life. But Spencer, uh, why not explain your translation of those words, Aviat, I'll, I'll read your translation first, because a baby is delivered to us, a son given, and the rule of law is on his shoulder. He's called by the name Miracle Mentor, Hero God, Father Forever, Sovereign of Peace. So how did you come up with Father Forever? Sure. So that odd is is a sort of thorny question. It it is. I'm. I'm just looking now again at the lexicon entry, and it is sort of an abstract noun referring to perpetuity or uh, even the sort of the, the final terminus. Uh, and when you have that construct with a, with two nouns sort of linked together one after the other, you sort of think of it. I think of it as a genitive. That is as a as a possessive. So, father of eternity is is certainly not a, an impossible translation. But it's also the case that genitive, the genitive case can link two words in a lot of different ways. It can be the father who exists forever, the father who inhabits forever, the father who, the father who begets eternity or, or begets and gives birth to forever. Um, and so I was looking for two things in this translation. I mean, this is, of course, one of the most famous lines in Isaiah, maybe the most famous line. A wonderful God, mighty counselor, or wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace everlasting father. And something I think that, that gets missed every now and then is that I, I, this is one of the moments in which uh, Isaiah is really doing a lot with, with the sound of the Hebrew language. Pela yoaz, el gibor, aviad, sar shalom. There's alliteration, there's a kind of rhythm there. And so I wanted to capture that, and I was looking also for something that would convey the intimacy of, of Av, my, my father, with this sort of awe and majesty of, of the perpetuity and eternity odd. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think I've really resolved for you the question that you raised about the translational ambiguity, and, and I'm not sure that I can. I think that that's another one of those questions that, that might be exciting to leave open, and, and of course yeah. both may be true of God. But yeah, miracle mentor, hero God, father forever, sovereign peace is, is what I've ended up with. Yeah, and, and for sure, although El Gibor, hero God as opposed to mighty God, I've, I've seen... I've seen that miracle mentor. Mm. That was a, that was a brand new one. I thought what, that that had some thought behind it. But uh, Jay, just to finish off briefly, 
Um, because Aviad could mean father of eternity, as, as, as Spencer just explained. So what would that mean? It could mean the possessor of eternity, or it could mean father forever. And since it's a prophecy of the king, and obviously the messianic king, and he has this, this superhuman or supernatural status, uh, is he equated with being the heavenly father? Well, no. But as, as the leader of Israel, as the anointed leader of Israel, is he the father of the nation? Remember that God said to Joseph, I've, I've made you a, a father to Pharaoh. You know, so, so raising him up in that way. So I, I agree with Spencer's translation, father forever. So as the king of Israel is the Messiah, he is the father of the nation forever, but he's not the heavenly father, hence everlasting father. So I, I don't believe it means father of eternal life. I mean, b- believe it means father forever as the one who will, who will uh, lead the nation as the anointed leader, as the divine king. And why others don't translate it that way as much. Sometimes you just get used to a certain thing. It's, it becomes so famous so well-known that it's difficult to get away from it. All right? I certainly understand. Um, would it be okay if I had asked a very brief uh, follow-up question that I just Yeah, yeah, sure. As long as it's brief, sure thing. Um, does Hebrew follow the same rule as Spanish, where the adjective follows the noun? For example, it would be the milk white rather than the, the white milk. Is, is that true of Hebrew as well? Yep, mm-hmm. it is. Okay, sure thank thing. you very much for clearing that Yep, you are very welcome, Jay. Thank you for the question. Um, all right, tell you what, we, we got time for one more question, Spencer. Uh, and Denise in Richmond, we got to dive right into your question, so please go for it. Yes, hi, guys. Um, just a quick question with this thing, the Christmas season. I, a debate came up in our Sunday school class, wondering about Mary's, not a direct language translation specifically, but wondering about Mary's knowledge of Scripture that wondering if her Magnificat does indeed speak of her having knowledge of passages like those in Isaiah, where she may have had some inclination that she was somehow involved in fulfilling scripture, wondering if the person who recorded it, probably they, of course, may have recorded that by the oral tradition, as you mentioned, Dr. Brown. Um, Got it. He was, was speaking um, to Elizabeth. I'm wondering, <laughs> those who would have captured her words in writing for her and so on, does that yeah, speak so, of the so general three... culture being really educated? Yep, yep. So, so three, three options, and we'll, we'll get Spencer's take on this. One option, Miriam Mary, is she, she knows the scriptures well, and she's actually quoting from, paraphrasing, especially 1 Samuel 2 in Luke 1. It's one option. Second option is she just spoke by supernatural inspiration of the Spirit. Of course, as a Jewish young woman, then she wouldn't have had that much knowledge of scripture. Or third option is she spoke out words of praise, which then Luke embellishes with words of scripture. So, Spencer, what's, what's your take on that one? Yes, yeah, great question. I mean, one thing I'll say is we know Jesus knew his Bible back to front, right? He quotes, yes. quotes Isaiah, reads it out loud in, in synagogue, and, and so it's not impossible that there's a, there's a quotation going on there. My own, this is a very kind of squishy just feel for the character of Mary, is that uh, that, that reads to me like a moment of inspiration by the Holy Spirit as your option two, uh, but certainly all three of those options are possible. Got it. All right, so, so Denise... A good way to look at it is the Holy Spirit inspired her to speak. You couldn't assume, even as a godly young woman, that she would have had that much knowledge of Scripture. She may have, of course, but literacy was not as high uh, in the general population, A, and then B, even more so among women. But maybe that's why she was specially chosen. She loved the Lord so much she had memorized Scripture as a girl. But certainly the Holy Spirit could speak it, 
and would speak it in harmony with previous revelations. So great, great question, uh, Denise. Thanks so much. Hey, Spencer, really quickly, when folks go to rejoice-evermore.com, what else will they find there? And what is it that, that you want to give to God's people these days? Oh, that's a, a great question. I am delighted to answer. So obviously the Isaiah Project is the sort of central thing that's going on right now at, at rejoice-evermore.com, and you can find that right up at the top. But I, I also produce all kinds of writing, uh, both sort of in more secular venues. Sometimes I write articles about faith and culture. There are sermons that I give in, in Oxford when, at, at various chapels around, around the university, and those are on different subjects that you can, again, just click on the, the tab at the top. And I also occasionally write devotional poems, which sometimes people have found helpful. One of the sermons that, that people tend to respond to most is one called Name Your Demons. It's the first one up there, and that's on the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. But uh, the, if you just want to stick to the Isaiah Project, there's 14 chapters up, and I release a new one every week, and you can sign up uh, on the website to get email updates as well. New one every week. That's that's impressive. That's that's definitely grace to get that done. And, and in 30 seconds, the atmosphere at Oxford, is there openness to the to the gospel, or is it very hostile? You know, I've been really blessed and lucky. It's a place where there's a long, long Church of England tradition. Of course, each, almost every college within Oxford has its own chapel and, and chaplain. Of course, academia is a place where it's easier than most other places to be sort of dismissive of faith and religion, but at least I've, I've received a really open mind. I know there's been some trouble in the American Academy on this yeah. front, but I've been lucky to be received well. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Well, you, you you bring something to Oxford as well. Man, I really appreciate this hour with you. It's been wonderful. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. The feeling's mutual. Likewise. Thanks very much. All right. God bless. God bless.